Let's just take a moment and, and pray and ask God to just open our hearts. Father, I thank you for every person here. I thank you for the way that you love us. I thank you for the way that you have loved us so much that you um, didn't just communicate in a written word through Scripture, but you uh, communicated through the word, uh, uh, an actual living being, Jesus Christ. And we ask, Jesus Christ, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to have freedom in this place, this, this, this morning, we pray, that we might have soft and tender hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you know, I was reading some things around stress and, and how that impacts the body, and it was amazing as I was thinking about that. I, as I was reading it, I, I thought about some parallels with what we're going to be actually looking at today. Um, it has actually been learned that stress has the ability to change your blood cells. And it, it can actually take your normal, healthy cells, which are round and smooth and, and shapely, and as the impact of stress, you can see what they do is they change your cells so they become a little bit more curled up and they don't function as well. And over time, that stress accumulates and it continues to damage further those very cells. And here's a quote from one of the studies. The effects of stress can actually kill the cells inside you, leaving you a weaker person in every sense of the word. As cells die off by the thousands sometimes leaving you wide open to infections and other stress-related illnesses. Now think about that for a second. I, I'm just talking about stress. And how many of you would disagree with that? that? How many would believe that stress has no impact on your body? We just live in a day and age where there's been enough studies, enough understanding that we see that stress really impacts our body physically. It actually opens doors for physical illnesses as well as other emotional and other kind of related illnesses that take place in a person's life. Well, I want you to think for a second, because what Jesus has been talking about with regard to the community that he's trying to create and leave behind for generation after generation until we come to this point in history where we as a community represent what he was hoping to leave behind. He makes this statement, and it comes in the story at one point, that unforgiveness, fractured, ruptured relationships, open doors for there to be physical, emotional, and not just relational difficulties, but it opens doors for consequences that are, that are somewhat lethal to your physical body and to your relational experience with others. Now, how many would disagree with that? So if that's true, as Jesus is teaching in this passage of Scripture, and he's speaking to us, his community, people who are seeking to follow him, it would imply to me that I should, that you should, that we should, do everything that we possibly can to live in this experience of forgiveness and what that fully means. What I find is interesting is I read through this passage of Scripture. It all begins, and I've, I've said this enough, so, you know, sometimes teaching is about repeating things so you really get it and learn it and so that you can even repeat it. And I, I really love this chapter 18. Honestly, coming into it as I began to study it, I had, I had no idea the depths and understanding that was in the heart of God and in Jesus when he began to teach on this. 
When, when the disciples came up with this question, they said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? And Jesus is just thinking, are you kidding me? I'm going to be leaving in about six months and I'm going to be leaving it to you. And you're still wrestling with this, which is not really uncommon for people who begin to follow Jesus. And even if you follow Jesus for many years, you're still wrestling with this because we are called to live not in the world of, of power, influence and, and, and rules and things such as that. As we're called to live in this new kind of community, which is all about relationship and about loving relationships and how you maintain those kind of relationships, which is really difficult to do because we live in an environment, in a political structure, in all different ways within the structures of our world that call us to continue to move this direction. And they ask this question, which reveals that they're in a transactional kind of kingdom with regard to relationship. And he's saying, no, I want you to be in a relational kind of world. And so Jesus begins that first lesson. And if you go through verses 1 through 14, he's just saying, you need to be like a child and the kind of things that create intimacy is vulnerability. And you, you better protect the vulnerable, is his next point. And after you begin to protect the vulnerable, you begin to understand that the heart of God is one that treasures this kind of vulnerability. Goes after people who are lost. Goes after people who, not, who are not in this world, who, who have, have lived in such a way that they... they, they have the gifts and the skills to to somehow think they can measure up. He goes after these kind of people who have come to a place where they recognize their own limits. And you can still be gifted and skilled and, and have wealth and all these other things, but you can come to the place of your own limitations to whatever it is and recognize the fact that it's not about you, but it's about God. And but, but for God, but for the grace of God, I would not experience life as he intended and so as you begin to develop that kind of community where vulnerability is so treasured and it's protected, he then makes it very clear that kind of community will experience those kind of hurts and pains that cause people difficulty. And so he moves to his second lesson. So that's his first lesson. Intimacy requires vulnerability. He now moves to the second one in verses 15 through 20. And he basically is saying intimacy requires hard work, hard work in a community. It's easy to stay offended and not directly deal with an individual person. It's easy to stay offended and talk about that to others and never really deal again one-on-one with this person. And Jesus says, that's not the kind of community I came to create. The kind of community that I came to create is the kind of community where you move into one-on-one relationships because those kind of relationships that, that where people are working hard at maintaining this kind of vulnerability that creates intimacy, creates movement and dynamic where the Spirit of God can be alive. And in lies it all kinds of potential for healing. And Jesus ends this discourse with this final lesson, which we've been looking at, which we're going to get in again to today. The key to intimacy in a broken world is forgiveness. When you create this kind of environment where there is vulnerability, where you create this kind of environment where you say we're going to work hard at really maintaining the kind of relationship that allows for the Spirit of God to bring healing and health and draws people into it, the key that maintains this kind of thing is forgiveness. Because we are broken people, every one of us. Every one of us will hurt someone. Anybody here in a marriage relationship where one person has not hurt the other? Anybody ever been raised in a family you've never been hurt? Anybody been raised in a church where you haven't been hurt? How about in your business? It just happens. And so if it's going to happen, Jesus says, I'm going to give you a key. It may not mean that all relationships are reconciled because there's a whole sense of trust and, and that person has to come into relationship with you. But you can do something that keeps the door open, that allows for there to be relationship. And it's called forgiveness. 
Plain and simple. So intimacy requires vulnerability. He says it requires hard work of maintaining this relationship. It requires forgiveness. And so verse 21 to 35. And I'm going to read from the message this week. I've been reading from the NIV. But I'll just read it from a different translation, a more of a paraphrase. This is not an exact translation. Verse 21. At that point, Peter got up the nerve to ask, Master, Lord, how many times do I forgive a brother or sister who hurts me? Seven? Jesus replied, seven. Hardly. Try 70 times seven. The kingdom of God is like a king, you guys. He says, let me just illustrate it for you. Let me tell you a story about what you've just asked, Peter, because you're really asking a very good question. I'm not coming down on you. I'm not calling you an idiot in any way. I'm calling you that you're really close to getting it, Peter. You're really almost there. So here's what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a king who decided to square accounts with his servants. And as he got underway, one servant brought before him, uh, who was brought before him, had run up a debt of $100,000. And really, in, in the terms of that day, I think it was closer to millions to billions of dollars. And he couldn't pay up, so the king ordered the man, along with his wife and children and goods, to be auctioned off at the slave market. The poor wretch threw himself at the king's feet and begged, Give me a chance and I'll pay it back. Touched by his plea, the king let him off, erasing the debt. And the servant was no sooner out of the room when he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him ten dollars. He seized him by the throat and demanded, Pay up now! And the poor wretch threw himself down and begged, give me a chance and I'll pay it all back. Kind of the very same words that he had just said, right? But he wouldn't do it. He had him arrested and put in jail until the debt was paid. And when the other servants saw this going on, they were outraged and brought a detailed report to the king. And the king summoned the man and said, you evil servant. I forgave your entire debt when you begged me for mercy. Shouldn't you be compelled to be merciful to your fellow servant who asks for mercy? And the king was furious and put the screws to the man until he had paid back his entire debt. And that's exactly what my Father in heaven is going to do. These words are... There's times, don't you wish there were words that were just not in Scripture? Because they have a way of grabbing you by the throat. The Spirit of God has a way of putting His finger right on your chest. And that's exactly what my Father in Heaven is going to do to each one of you who doesn't forgive unconditionally anyone who asks for mercy. And this is how my Father will treat you, says Jesus, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. There's three applications of this. One is that forgiven people forgive. I said that last week. And what I find interesting in this story is Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's not speaking to the people that you would think are, are, are questioning him or, or are the non-followers of him. He's actually in a room, in a sense, if you want to look at it. This is his fourth of five seminars. He starts the Sermon on the Mount and does one on what it means to follow him as, a, as one of his disciples. And then he goes into the parable of kind of the kingdom now present. Now he comes to this fourth one that is birthed out of this question where he kind of goes, I've got to take you guys aside for a moment puts his child before him and says, puts his hands on him and says, I want to share with you this. And he, he shares with them that as he gets to this point, if the kingdom, if the community that I'm going to build is really going to have any sustaining power to it, it's going to have to be the kind of kingdom where forgiveness really is something treasured. And, and it's not something you do in a time when you have some difficulties going on in your, in your family or in, in, in your church or, or in your marriage. It is something that is a tool that is in that tool box, so to speak, or is on that tool belt that you are using on a somewhat consistent basis. 
I think that's why Jesus says 70 times 7. And so it's one of these tools that you use quite often. And, and Jesus' concern is that these people who are following him were beginning to look at rules again. They're kind of saying, you know, it's about quotas, it's measures, it's about amounts, it's transactional. So if I do it so many times, if I, if I do it this many times, then I'm really living the life you want me to live. Because we really don't always find greater security in following rules. But what Jesus is talking about is not about rules because, you know what, you can go ahead and you can put all kinds of rules together in your home and in your household but not have heart relationship. You can have all kinds of rules and you can follow all kinds of rules. You can be really good followers of some of these rules here in, in my word and, you know what, not have the kind of heart relationship that only takes place around the times where people get vulnerable and in that vulnerability work hard when they're hurt to move towards one another and they're going to have to apply forgiveness. It is like the oil that makes it all work. And so he makes this very clear, and he, he's concerned about this, that they don't understand that there's only one rule that he wants them to have guiding their hearts and lives. There's one rule that will be coming from within. It flows like rivers, like the Spirit of God. This one rule is the rule of love. And this one rule, the rule of love, is best understood when you stand, understand this point that Jesus is making, is that forgiven people who have been forgiven by God, forgiven much, forgive others. It's just the way it flows through you. It flows. It flows through that kind of life. It has to flow. And it gets dead end in some way. Jesus goes on to share with us what happens. One thing I want to share with you that I've been kind of all throughout these weeks had a thought in my, in, in my mind that really applies well to what Jesus has been saying here is that forgiven people will still need to forgive. And by that, I mean, you're going to find that you will be, as Peter says here, you go back to how many times are to forgive. Another way is how many little debts do I need to cancel of one person? How many times when this person offends me in the same way do I need to go back and forgive them? And Jesus makes it very clear. As soon as it all adds up to the amount that you have been forgiven by God, when you get to that amount, you're about right there. Right? I have to share with you this, that um, as you understand the way God has wired us and made us as people, overcoming relational patterns requires time. Those relational patterns that hurt and offend people, those kind of things that, that will happen, you go, man, in your marriage... How many times do I got to do this again? First, uh, I think it's really interesting because Jesus, at one other point when he's teaching about this, is asked a very similar question. Luke puts it this way. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. It's this. He says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So the idea is that when someone hurts you and offends you, the idea is to come back to them and say, look, this offended me. And if, it's, and if you can really clearly establish that you're not just feeling offended, but it really is an offense, a violation in a sense of a, of a boundary that has been broken, such as a promise not kept, then you need to go to that person and say, hey, look, you've got to stop that. He says, how many times do you do this? If he sins against you seven times in a day, look, seven times in a day. And seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. You know, that's a crazy teaching, isn't it? But the reality is, and people who have worked with people in, in counseling kind of settings and others know that what happens when a person begins to start dealing with some patterns that have been set in their life, at first they begin to realize that what's happening is when they hurt someone, a lot of times they're in fear and they react. And that's just a natural thing that you usually learn through some kind of wound or some kind of upbringing or some kind of whatever um, uh, things that you have learned in, in your family of origin or some kind of those very what I call environments that help create who you are. You find that when you get into that place, you react. And one of the first things the person begins to do is have insight to go, oh, I did that. 
Doesn't mean they stop it. It means they just get insight. And that's what you've got to be watching for in a person when they're moving into relationship with you. Are they getting, is there any insight? You know, I, I think of this when my, my kids in, in the home that I was raised in, when, when we would, when I as a kid, my, you know, I'd spill milk a lot, to be honest with you. My mom said I was always spilling her milk. And when I'd spill the milk, my mom would react in this huge way and, and scare the, the daylights out of me. And, um, and so now as my kids as they were younger and they would spill milk, I would do the same thing. I still do that to some degree. But I've got insight. I'm able to now begin, to, when, I, when it happens, I'm able to catch it. See, that's what happens in relational patterns when a person begins to hurt you. After a while, a person gets insight. Once they get insight, then they're able to slow down the reactive pattern. That's why I think Jesus makes these kind of statements. One of the reasons you forgive often is because if they're moving in the insight, you're going to need to forgive it because eventually there's a pattern that is put in place. Insight comes, and when a person understands it, they then have to move. And it's a very, it's, it's a very embarrassing. I'll use the, the word shame is usually used in such a way that you, you, you feel... Um, uh, it, it's almost toxic, but the word shame is really more a sense of embarrassment. And so what happens is you have to go to the person and say, I'm sorry, uh, forgive me. And, and that can be a very embarrassing thing. And, and God uses both insight and this sense of embarrassment so that you go, I don't want to keep doing that, right? I, I'm asking you, God, so he says, if you'll cooperate with me, I'll begin to change those patterns. And so the community does that together. Do you know that you are the hope of the world? We're the hope of the world. We are supposed to be a kind of community that people can come in and they begin to understand the things that they do, the sins that they've committed, as they begin to understand and gain insight to that and they understand that they've been forgiven by God. They begin to have applied to their life your forgiveness in their situations. And they get reactions and responses that are so different from what they're used to. And it begins to free them as they come before God. And I'm talking about people earnestly seeking to change. God begins to change their life. Does that make sense at all? And so in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. If there's genuine godly sorrow, then the combination of repentance with the key of forgiveness is the key into deeper intimacy, which allows for vulnerability to grow as people maintain these work, these, these things. And so in verses 3 and 4, listen to what he says after Jesus gives us incredibly hard teaching in Luke. Guess what the response of the disciples are? It's kind of like yours. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. I don't think I can do this. You may be in a marriage situation right now where, you know, God's just saying, you know what, the kind of faith, what, what, he, what I think he's saying here is, why increase faith? Because you have to really, 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 really believe that you have offended more than the person has offended you. You have offended God more than the person has offended you. That takes faith. If you're like me, you have a lot of pride and you go, I can't believe that, right? But what takes faith is to go, God, I really believe that has you forgiven me, I'm going to turn around and learn how to forgive. Now, I want to share with you this, because this is important too, because when I read Scripture like this, I don't just read this one passage. You have to read it within the context of the Scripture that has been given. So in the context of this, of this whole teaching of Jesus, you have to go back just a little bit when he says working hard on relationship and understand not only will people need forgiveness, they may need it many different times. Really, the forgiveness is not about them, it's really about you. So it's not even um, that you're necessarily even doing something for them, although you are. The reality is you're doing something more for yourself. But here's the second thing you need to understand is forgiven people may still need some boundaries. 
Okay, God is not asking any person to be a, a mat to be walked on. Jesus never did. You know, there were certain times when Jesus came to situations that says he left the, the, the area where Herod was king and he left that place. He left Jerusalem because he knew that they, they were going to try to kill him. And so he would put up boundaries. You're always called to forgive, but you may be required to set some boundaries in relationships. You may need to create space to draw another person's heart and character out. That's what happens when you put boundaries out. Boundaries are not primarily to punish in one sense. Boundaries are merely to protect that which is vulnerable. And also at the same time, those very boundaries that create distance and space can work in a person's heart because eventually the consequences really of their actions should be such that it creates that kind of space. But if you don't give them that kind of space, they'll never come to grips with it. And so as they do, they begin to understand, they get insight, and then they begin to want to change. And then you can begin to start moving back into relationship with them. So if you look what Jesus had just taught about, Go back to 18, verse 17. Jesus says when a person is confronted, if you go to him with a group of people, an intervention, so to speak, he uses the church, this assembly, this group of people. And when we think of the church, we think of maybe 200, 300 people. The assemblies that he was thinking of in that day were much smaller groups. So it's really much more like an intervention. And so when he taught this, he says, if he refuses listen to, to, to listen to you, just a couple of you, tell it to the assembly. And if he refuses to listen to the assembly, a group of people lovingly intervening, then treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. He's not saying that you should be treating him in some awful way. He's basically saying a pagan or a tax collector doesn't understand. He's saying in, in, the, in the realm of, of that world and that culture they lived in, that person didn't have insight, didn't have spiritual insight. So this person doesn't have any insight. And so what you do is you create, in a sense, space. So there will become insight. You call a person into change because of the consequences of their actions. David wanted so badly to fulfill what God had placed in his heart. The call that David had in his heart was to be the king. He was told by Samuel he would. So he went into the courts. He kills Goliath. He starts singing. He has a presence before the king. He starts killing the thousands. You know, Saul's killing his thousands. He's killing tens of thousands. Things seem to be really good. He's on the way up. But Saul, at a certain point, becomes jealous. So Saul, as he's asking him in these headaches or whatever experiences Saul has, and David starts playing this little instrument, a harp or something like it, Saul eventually is overcome with the spirit of jealousy, takes the spirit that's next to him and throws it and misses. David goes, whoa, God, thank you for protecting me. But David's not going to leave. He's got this call of God on his heart. And so he stays in there. There's a second time a spear is thrown, just misses David. Finally, Jonathan comes to David and says, David, you don't get it. You you know what? If God's going to fulfill this call in your heart, he's going to fulfill it in his way and in his time. And and it may be different than what you think. But the route that you need to take right now, what's before you, is you need to create some distance because the next spear may hit you. Does that make sense? And so he says, you know what, you need to create some kind of, um, until there's some insight, you need to move. So he leaves, and you, you can read about this all in 1 Samuel chapter 19 and verse, in chapter 20. And then from 21 through 31 is really all the chapters of David who has created spaces. He lives outside of Israel during that time, trying to figure out, God, how are you going to fulfill this call in my life? That space is created, Saul's kingdom continues to fail, and eventually Saul, as he goes after David to kill him, realizes David forgives him. David doesn't harm him. David doesn't do wrong against him. David lives in such a godly way that as he has opportunity, David, to kill Saul, he doesn't. Saul is so overcome with emotion that he repents to, to David. He comes to him a couple different times. comes to him in chapter, I believe it's 24... 
and 26 and comes to him and he, he says, weeping, David, you're a better man than me. Come back and live with me. But David doesn't do it. There are times you need to maintain boundaries until there's some insight. And when that insight is coupled together with a spirit of godly repentance, not just a weeping and a sorrow because you're sorry for what you did and how you get caught, but godly repentance, when that begins to show and there's those manifestations, then trust can be built in that relationship. Does that make sense? So God is calling us to forgive, but he also says there may be times you have to set up boundaries. At some point, people in your life may need to experience. Here's the deal. What you try and do is you need to set up boundaries and distance that help them experience the consequences of their own sin or actions. It's not it's not to punish. It's so that the consequences of their own actions begin to cause them to see that they're losing what their heart most longs for, which is relationship. That's what God did with Israel at a certain point when Israel was with the prophets. And you look at the major and minor prophets throughout the Old Testament. He comes to him again and again. He's speaking the truth to him. He's saying, guys, if you don't, you know, don't change your ways. I'm going to actually take you out of this land. I will let the consequences of your own actions happen so much so that your land will be invaded. I told you this will happen. And these people will take you and they'll move you to another land and you will be in this other land and you'll be there for seven times 70. You're going to be there for a period of time, 70 years. And in that time, that perfect discipline of God, where they begin to understand the consequence of their sin, at a certain point you're going to come to repentance and guess what? I'll bring you back into relationship. You'll be back in the land, which is really in a sense you'll be back into the full presence of my, of, of my love. So forgiven people may sometimes need to forgive again and again, but in that process, that's the process that God brings about change when there's really honest repentance. Sometimes you'll need to set up boundaries. And then the last part I want to share with you is forgiven people forgive just like God. This is, he goes back to the same thing that he started with in a sense. They're compelled to forgive. People who are forgiven are compelled for one reason only. It has nothing to do with your own emotions. It has nothing to do with the other person. It has everything to do with your relationship with God. The compulsion to forgive. What compels you to forgive? Well, even in our unhealth, we will be compelled sometimes to forgive just because we don't want to be out of relationship with someone. I mean, we just need them so badly, and our life is in that relationship. Our life is never in another relationship. Our life is always in God. And the only thing that compels us to forgive is the very same love that comes from God. It's more about God and you in relationship that then, as a result of that, is filled up to overflowing by the mercy he's given you. And you go, how can I in any way withhold mercy to someone who owes me ten bucks? Matthew 18, verse 32 and 33, then the master called the servant and you wicked servant. He calls him wicked because of this. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on my fellow servant? Now, I want to get back to this whole idea of consequences of, of one's sin and forgiveness because Jesus brings this up. If you continue to read on, you'll see not only you're compelled, he says, to forgive because you've been forgiven, but the consequences of forgiveness are really important. And here's how God always works. I, I just, I love his word, and I love getting to know Jesus and, and this God who is our Father. He always starts by compelling us out of love. But if we won't move towards Him, if we're not drawn by His love, 
He's not against, as a good and loving father, driving you to him by fear. Think about that. There's a whole movement in Christianity today that want to get rid of the, any sense of this fear. God is a loving God. He's just like you as a parent. If you have to protect your child from going across the street, you'll instill some fear into their heart, won't you? So Jesus is basically saying, guys, if, if you've been forgiven and you won't forgive and you're not drawn and compelled because of my relationship with you and how much mercy I've given to you, I'm going to share with you another side of it. You should be afraid. Because if you feel you fail not to do so, there will be consequences. Just like we all agree stress really hurts your body, guess what? You're going to pay a price. In your body and in this body or in any family where you live with unforgiveness. And so he goes on and he makes this very clear. Unforgiveness, first of all, he says, imprisons you. You remain bound. And then secondly, he says it opens doors to tormentors. Look at what it says in verse 32. The master called the servant in, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in his anger, his master handed him over to, and this is what the NIV says, to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Now, that's a fair translation. It's really not what the word is. The word is he was handed over to torturers. The jailers were actually torturers. And he is, he, he's a really critical statement here, if you look at verse 34. In his anger, the master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. The Greek word, being torturous, it's in, in that time when you would go to a jailer and you had absconded a, a, a large amount of money, the torturing was inflicted in order to soften the person up so that they would admit and disclose any unacknowledged sources of income that they had taken and hidden. That makes sense. This, it's, it's, I'm going to soften you up till you get to the point where you confess. There is a sense in the love of God that he says, you know what? If you choose to live in unforgiveness, I will create consequences both in your body physically, both within your family or the body of the church, such so that as it continues, it will become so grievous and so painful that you will be moved to the place of confession. And repents. And so he basically says, not only does it imprison you, it locks you in the past with regard to things that have been done to you. It amazes me when you watch sometimes people or, and, and read enough of these kind of stories where people talk about their being in this place where they cannot forgive someone. And, and sometimes when you hear the story, you find out the person died 20 years ago and you go, ah, oh, they've been just imprisoned in the past. But beyond that, he talks about this. It opens doors. Those unhealed wounds kill the cells. They kill the cells in your family. They kill the cells in your body. They kill the cells in the church. Terry Taylor, whose life work at Navigators, he's done a thing called relational healing. He spent years studying this because of the difficulties and consequences that they had experienced. In Navigators at a point, he writes, An unforgiving spirit, pride, anger, gives Satan a door of opportunity, a foothold. They give him authority, a legal right to be involved. You can't serve an eviction notice without dealing with these issues, he says. Unforgiveness takes a more passive rather than an aggressive approach towards people. And he says, internally, through resentment and bitterness, anger comes out sideways. 
and becomes destructive. And these emotions turn inward. They hurt and torment only you. Your body takes the toll. Often an unseen price is paid through high blood pressure, heart problems, arthritic conditions, cancer, and on. I love this statement. He says, harboring resentment and bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping it kills the other person. It's an acid that destroys its own container. And I'm going to share this story. I shared this once before about a year or so ago, and Beth Moorhead gave this to me. It's about her son-in-law, Corey. And Beth is uh, on staff here in counseling, and she had shared this. And She said, my son-in-law, Corey, is a CPA with Larson Allen, a public accounting firm. He works in the health care division where he audits hospitals, nursing homes, and treatment centers. Recently, Corey was working on an audit of a cancer treatment center of America, which is called CTCA. And when Corey walked in to meet with the CEO, the man was reading the Washington Post and told Corey that he was reading a story of one of CTCA's families. However, the newspaper had chosen to leave out the best part of the story. That part involves CTCA. So the CEO proceeded to tell Corey the rest of the story. He says the family involved in the story was a wealthy couple from Mexico. The husband had been kidnapped and kidnapped and held for ransom. And while he was being held captive, his wife was diagnosed with breast cancer, and he went then to CTCA for treatment. CTCA approaches cancer from a wide variety of angles. They use appropriate medical conditions such as radiation and chemotherapy and medication, etc. In addition, they work with nutrition and counseling. While in counseling, the woman was asked, if there was anyone she should forgive and that needed to forgive. Isn't that interesting? I'm talking, we're talking about, this isn't church here. And uh, she realized that she had not forgiven the people who were holding her husband captive at that time. So in that counseling center, she made a decision to forgive them. And as soon as she spoke the words of forgiveness, she felt something change in her breast. A scan was ordered. No trace of cancer could be found. And sometime after that, her husband was released. That is truly how powerful forgiveness is. And I, I, have, I could read story after I was reading books on forgiveness. I could read numbers of stories where God had worked in that way. I talked to someone who this last year, men's fraternity, right now you're unpacking things with, the, you know, things with your fathers. And I talked to an individual who shared last year or less, and he talked about how God had worked in his life. And I just mentioned that I'm speaking on his favorite topic today. I was sharing that with his wife, and she goes, yeah, he's been a changed man since that. God changes things in our lives, in your family, in relationship to others. I'm going to ask the choir at this time to come in. And uh, as they come in, I, I, what I'd really love for you to do is to consider deeply. And, and the way to do this is not to so introspectively try through your own mind, but just to say, God, because God is a, he's given us his Holy Spirit. Just to say, Holy Spirit of God, this morning, at this point in my life, is there something that you want me to pay attention to around this? Is there something that I need to do with you and maybe do with another person to bring about the kind of healing, the kind of work, the kind of community that you want me to be living in, whether it's in my marriage or in my family, whether it's in my church or, or, or business or wherever it may be? You see, the character of one who fails to forgive reveals this. They're not 
they're not expressing the character of God. Your choice, he says, not to forgive puts you in a position to stand with Satan, the accuser. And you as one who doesn't forgive, if you look at what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 32, he basically says in that verse that um, what you demand of someone else is, is what you will be demanded of in your own life. And he says you stand at the accuser and so you live this life displaying not which what you were called to display. So I just want you to prayerfully think about this as this song is sung and ask God to, to power his mercy onto our body and into our lives.